0: And so when you actually blink, you effectively squeeze out that sponge. Ah. And then when you open your eyes, that sponge refills. I can't think of any more human activity than
1: conducting science experiments.
0: The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight,
1: straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Black Coats. my name is Hamid Siddiqui. On this week's episode, we have Professor Tom Miller, who is a biochemist that has been interested in the retina as well as the T-film. Uh, in fact, Tom and a former lecturer of mine, Burkhart, um, they've started a company, uh, they've built a device uh, that diagnoses issues with the tear film. So when you have issues with the tear film, you get dry eyes and itchy eyes. Um, but also they've developed a compound that can mitigate those issues. Uh, so it's really cool to see two scientists uh, come up with an idea and then uh, really take it to market, commercialize science, which is so cool. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned quite a bit. Um, and uh, I hope you guys do too. But before we get to the interview, um, I would like you guys to like our Facebook page so you can look us up on Blabcoats uh, on Facebook. Uh, Facebook. Fi- Facebook. Um, and give us a, a, a rating and let us know what you think of the podcast. Um, and for the guys that uh, have been listening, um, now it's been almost three months now. Damn. Uh, we appreciate you listening so thank you very much without you this isn't impo- this wouldn't have been possible um, and for the guys who actually gave us some feedback on and gave us some ratings uh, on iTunes and on Facebook we do appreciate it um, so thank you anyway without further ado here's my interview with Professor Tom Miller. When I first got introduced to biology, this was in high school, and I guess looking back at my life and why I fell into biochemistry and biology, I suppose the question that plagued me um, has been, how is it that life comes about from non-life? And I think my whole research journey is going to be based around that question. And I'm curious if you've had a, a question that drives you in your life.
0: No, I don't, but that was a very interesting comment because that's exactly what Louis Pasteur thought he was going to do. And very early on, he thought that he was going to be able to demonstrate how life came from non-life. And as a result of those experiments, he became a very good experimental scientist and decided that that wasn't true, that he couldn't do that. And indeed, but as a result, he discovered that um, (coughs) there wasn't such a thing as spontaneous generation, which was one of his big findings in in his life. So so that was very interesting. But for me, um, I guess I was born a scientist. So some people are born cricketers, some people are born other things, but I was born a scientist. So I always had a curiosity about nature and and how things work together. Um, What drove me to biochemistry was that I hated biochemistry, in fact. (laughs) Really? Um, I could do it, but I really didn't like it. So, uh, when I was given the task to teach biochemistry, I realised that most people would be in the same boat. So... I had to ask myself why I could do it and why I found it relatively easy, even though I hated it. Um, and and so that that enabled me to try to explore my own mind to find out how I was thinking about biochemistry, which I didn't really need to do. It was just me and how I thought was just what I do. I don't really question it. And so, so as a result, I... Explored my own mind on that and try to make it easier for students to understand
1: Hmm, That's interesting. So it was your attempt to teach That really put you deeper in this uh, or made your interest in biochemistry deeper.
0: Correct. That's that's right So trying to help students who find it difficult Give them a pathway so that it's actually easy,
1: right, right (laughs) That's fascinating. Whenever I think about biochemistry, um, the quote by Carl Sagan comes to mind. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it. The beauty of living things is not the atoms that go into it, but the atoms, um, the way those atoms are put together. Um, I'm curious. You said that you, you were trying to explore how you think. It, how you, uh, Do you mean by how you understand biochemistry um, in terms of h- how you can learn it more effectively? Or was it similar to how Carl Sagan was approaching it? in terms of appreciating the beauty of it and 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 how we are these apparently um biological machines i guess
0: ultimately i was recognizing patterns which made it easier for me to understand it and i didn't realize that that's what i was doing rather Mm. than the specific details right And, and what you find is that those patterns repeat and so it's actually quite easy, Mm. so long as you recognise the
1: patterns in the first place. Right. How did you get into eye research? Because I I saw you've done some work on the retina. Yeah, I started a long
0: time ago now, uh, more than 30 years ago. Uh, I was basically interested in immunohistochemistry when it first started and the immune system and how it all worked. And um, one of the areas which was emerging was immunohistochemistry and developing those techniques.
1: Can you just elaborate what immunohistochemistry is, please? Immunohistochemistry is using uh,
0: specific antibodies to identify molecules, which are in cells. So if you have a molecule against, let's say, dopamine or an enzyme which makes dopamine, then you can identify which cells in the body have dopamine in them by using immunohistochemistry. So when I first started, that was a very new technique. And I used it to explore the retina, which also wasn't very well understood in terms of the types of neurons in the retina and how they were talking to each other to give you what amounts to vision and being able to see things
1: so at that stage they had that uh, the the structure and the mechanism by which uh, we see wasn't clearly understood when it was relating to the, the retina
0: correct okay so so we did some immunohistochemistry to identify what types of cells were there uh, one of the things, so it did a number of things, but one of the things was to actually identify cholinergic cells in the retina. And they have specific uh, directional sensitivity and respond to on and off pathways. So some neurons in your retina only fire when the light goes on, some, some neurons fire when the r- light goes off. Other neurons will respond to a movement in one direction and not in another. So there's a lot of complexity going on. It might actually shock you that photoreceptors are actually turned off by light. They're not turned on by light. So it's quite a... So we sense that turning off by light as a signal rather than turning
1: on by light. Right, so most people think that that when the light hits your eye, then those those retinal cells or the photoreceptors uh get activated but what you're saying is that actually when when you some cells in the eye actually turn off no when the photoreceptors themselves when the light hits them yep they're actually
0: um turned off and and why is that it's Wh- just the way it is so yeah. so it's like i guess it's like a digital signal it really doesn't matter whether it's zero or one right. so long as you determine the change
1: right right
0: so i guess that's one of the interesting things about science <coughs> is that for the general public they don't need to understand uh, and they do rely on scientists to have that understanding and then uh, so that they can explore it
1: mm. so you you're interested in the retina how did that develop because i know um, I know you're working with the tear film now um and you've done some research on that so how did how did you transition away from the retina into focusing into the tear film
0: um, i guess it was it was really that your interests changed generally and and when you go to conferences and things like that you hear about other ideas and so you then see that there are real problems associated with some of the other areas of the eye, mm-hmm. and and I guess you wonder whether you can apply the knowledge which you're using before into these other areas, and that's what I did. So, mm-hmm.
1: um, so, so what sort of problems did you see when it came to the tear film?
0: So there were problems with the immune system and the tear film. So there's a condition called Sjogren's Syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease which affects the liver glands and uh, the lacrimal gland, which produces the watery part of the tears. So that was interesting. I was also interested in, interested in the complexity of how molecules interact with each other. And in the tear film, that is quite... Um, extraordinarily complex because you have a range of different proteins and you have lipids and you have a surface and when molecules are at a surface they behave quite differently from when they're in the bulk so when they're in you know they're contained within a liquid as opposed to the molecules just at the surface of that liquid Mm. so they're very different so from an intellectual point of view, it may seem quite simple looking at molecules at a surface, but it's extraordinarily complex and much more complex than looking at them in the bulk. And for the tear film to work, to give you an idea that the, if you magnified the eye so that it's two metres in diameter and looked at the exposed surface of the eye on that scale, it would be about two square metres of exposed eye. And on that scale, the tear film, when it spreads after a blink, would be 0.3 of a millimetre thick over the whole two square metres. So for that to happen, if you tried to spread water over two square metres and have it at 0.3 of a millimetre thick, it would just collapse, it would form little um, droplets on the surface. It wouldn't form a film. So for that to happen, there's extraordinary physical chemistry involved, which people don't really understand and um, so that's that's intellectually fascinating for me mm. um, and quite complex.
1: Right. so you were trying to understand how were you trying to understand how the properties of the tea film came about? It was or were you trying to? Uh, it's uh, really
0: about how they work, and how they work together, with a view that you might be able to understand uh, when it fails, and when it fails, people get dry eye, mm. and dry eye represents at least so fifteen percent of the population have dry eye, mm. so it's quite extensive. Um, so that means their tear film's failing, but. Because it's such a complex mixture, because a person has dry eye doesn't tell you what sort of dry eye that person
1: has. Mm. So there are different sorts of dry eye. Um, we, sorry, uh, for the for the people who aren't well informed about the tea film, could you uh, give us an idea or explain to us the different layers uh, of of the tea film and, and what sort of function it plays? Okay, so.
0: One of the features of the eye is, which most people will be familiar with, is the cornea. Mm -hmm. Uh, The cornea is the clear part of the eye which um, the light goes through to the retina. Now, for that to be clear, it can't have blood vessels. If it had had blood vessels in it, it wouldn't be clear. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have blood vessels. So it has to defend itself from infections and dust and all sorts of things uh, without having a blood supply, without having effectively an, an immune system which is readily available. So one of the functions of the tears is to serve that function and it does it by a number of mechanisms and one of the mechanisms is simply that you replace the tear film. So if things get trapped in the tear film you blink and you get rid of it and you've probably experienced that Uh, To some degree, if you get a speck of dirt in your eye or dust, which is quite... And you blink away and eventually it ends up in the corner of your eye and gets rid of it off the surface. Well, that's that's actually happening all of the time. But the tear film also has proteins which fight bacteria and probably many of the students in our courses learn about lysozyme in the tears and, and do a few experiments with tears to show that the tears can actually kill bacteria. It has to keep. It also provides nutrients for the cornea because, again, not having a um, a um, <clears throat> blood supply, it actually needs nutrients from somewhere to stay alive, and and it gets that from the tear film. So it has lots and lots of functions. So all of those little bits have to work properly. Mm. Um, at the same time, you don't want it to be really thick. If it were really thick, then it would alter. Uh, the refraction because you're really going from an air environment to a watery environment. So when light goes from one density environment to another, it bends. And so the first interface which light comes to is actually the tear film, and and the light starts to bend at that point. And so you don't want it really thick, otherwise that would interfere again with the focus of your vision. Mm. So it's a very thin layer, which is replaced frequently on each blink. Uh, The blink actually spreads it. And (coughs) to form that structure, there are three main components. Against the surface of the eye are mucins. Some of those are actually attached to the surface of the eye.
1: And what do they do? These
0: mucins are very hydrophilic proteins, so they attract water because the surface of your cells is very hydrophobic. So it provides a bridge between the cell surface, which is very hydrophobic, and um, and the tears themselves. So it bridges between that hydrophobic surface and the... Uh, and the hydrophilic water component of your tears. Then you have the watery component of your tears, which we're all familiar with, which is um, contains lots of proteins as well as other nutrients such as glucose and, and salts. Uh, the salt concentration is similar to that found in your blood, but it's also different from that, such as it has much higher potassium levels than in the blood. And then sitting on top of that is an oil layer. It's quite a complex oil layer and the oils are very unusual. And in fact, um, people don't really understand the biochemical pathways associated with their synthesis, which is an interesting area um, that people haven't explored. So so altogether um that forms and that's a traditional view of the tear film. Our research has taken us that we have quite a different view of the tear film, that the uh the mucins which I mentioned earlier and other proteins actually form a sponge basically and the water components flow through that sponge and over um, and so when you actually blink, you effectively squeeze out that sponge ah. and then when you open your eyes, that sponge refills because, ah. and so and the oils assist in that refilling of the sponge, so.
1: So previously, uh, from some of the videos uh, I've been watching about the t film, just to understand how it works, they've explained that there's a mucin layer, there's an aqueous layer which contains all those enzymes and uh, the ions, and then you have the lipid layer. What you're telling me is that the mucin layer acts like a sponge that interacts with the aqueous layer, lets it uh, almost go into that sponge, and then when we so rather, it than,
0: rather than have it as three layers, like yeah. you've just described, you regard it as a sponge, okay? And that they're not really separate layers. So the sponge is an intricate network of proteins, including mucins, which are connected together. And in between those proteins is water which is the aqueous layer. And and then sitting on top is the um, lipid, layer. lipid layer. But for the sponge to fill properly, you need to eliminate the water-air interface because air in terms of water is hydrophobic. And so you need a link which removes that interface and that's what the oils do otherwise the water wouldn't fill the sponge properly
1: when you say interface uh, what do you mean is that the aqueous layer you're referring to so if i if i take some water Mm -hmm.
0: and throw it up in the air it forms a drop a round drop yep okay and it doesn't spread out in the air it forms a drop and that's because the water doesn't want to be with the air So the interface between the water and the air is equivalent to the water being hydrophilic and the air being hydrophobic. So the water wants to be away from it. So the Mm. best way the water can get away from the air is for it to become as small as possible and yet have the biggest volume possible. So the smallest surface area with the biggest volume is a sphere. So it forms little droplets. And we don't want... The watery part of our tears to form little droplets which it would do even if the sponge were there it wouldn't spread properly in the sponge so to make that happen you actually need to get rid of that interface between the water and the air and that's where the oils come in oh. so and those oils have surfactant molecules in them as well and that's that's what removes that interface but they also have very hydrophobic waxes and cholesterol esters which are really hydrophobic molecules to help the spread.
1: That is fascinating I never knew that um, that's so cool. Um, what, le- what led you to that conclusion that it was a sponge? So yeah how did you come to the conclusion that it was a sponge rather than this established model or paradigm that was there previously? Well The advantage
0: we have is that we can actually see the tear film and that hasn't been, uh, people haven't been able to do that before and we can now do that and so we've done a number of experiments because we can actually see the tear film as it um, works if you like on the eye during a blink, after a blink, what it looks like. Um, that's enabled us to do a number of experiments and based on those experiments we've come to that conclusion. So things like we have cooled the tear film down to... so the normal temperature of the tear film is about 34 degrees centigrade but we've cooled it down to 26 degrees centigrade and when you do that you can actually grab hold of it and move it around on your eye. So it acts like a gel, if you like, or a frozen gel, and you can actually move it. So that means that it's not just a liquid. If it were a liquid in that layering form, you wouldn't be able to see that. We can cut holes in it. So we've cut holes in it, and those holes don't reform until after a couple of blinks. Now, if it were just a liquid, when you cut a hole in the you know, you put your finger in the swimming pool, cut a hole in the swimming pool, it reforms straight away. That doesn't happen. So you actually cut a hole in that gel and it doesn't reform. So also, based on the current model, if you you blinked harder, so if you did a hard blink, the tear film should reform more quickly. So if it's a sponge when you blink harder you squeeze that sponge out more so it's actually harder to refill rather than
1: faster to refill and that's what we see. Hmm. That's fascinating. The technology uh, which enabled you to do this type of analysis is this something you developed yourself um, and your research group or is this something that has emerged recently in the in the market,
0: no it's something
1: we developed, and at the moment we're trying to commercialize that nice so, can without giving away all your secrets, can you tell us about uh, this piece of technology and a bit about your company and what you're trying to do okay so
0: so we so when you have a commercial type of an idea and and when when I saw this, uh, the results of some of our research, I thought, hmm, perhaps we have something different here and, and discover what we we're seeing. It was actually initially quite difficult because what we were expecting to see was the technology we weren't seeing. And that's the reason for it. Turns out that we were looking mainly at my eyes and I have a super tear film. So when I open my eyes, nothing changes and we were expecting changes as the tear film broke down but it just wasn't happening because i can hold my eyes open for minutes on end um so there weren't any changes so it took us a while to discover that what we were actually seeing was the tear film it was just that mine weren't behaving if you like in the normal way right um so we thought We would try to commercialise that. The way the system works is that because you're an employee of the university, um, the intellectual property initially belongs to the university and you have to declare it to the university that you think you have something which might be of commercial value. And the university has, according to policy, a certain period of time to do something about it. And if they don't do that, then they have to give that IP back to the inventors. In our case, we declared it to the university and the university did nothing about it, which um, was good for us, ultimately. Mm. But the reason the university can't do that is that they really don't have the resources and and. So they don't have the expertise in the area, they don't have the passion to drive it into a commercial product, and they really don't have a network of contacts to uh, do that, and and they simply don't have the time.
1: It's interesting you say that, if I could just interrupt. Um, Have you heard of Meow Ludo Gamma Disco Meow Meow? He was on the news recently with the chip underneath his, the Opal card chip, and he was saying, very, something very similar to to what you're saying. He was saying that you know papers first of all don't, save problems, oh, don't solve problems, um, and the universities need to fund technologists and uh, fund startups, but they should um, release their hold on intellectual property when scientists like yourself come up with ideas like this. Mainly because of the issues that you raised, they don't have the networks and they do a terrible job at turning an idea into a technology. I think you have to be careful of people like him
0: who really are publicity seekers. And it's very easy to give cheap shots like that and make broad statements. Mm -hmm. You need to explore why you're saying that, Mm. or is it just an opinion? So what's his evidence that that's the case? So... So people like that, who are publicity seekers, actually annoy me. Mm-hmm. And as a scientist, you should question their motivations and you should question the evidence on what they base their opinions on. And that's actually a role of a scientist. And, mm-hmm. and if you become a scientist, then you should keep that at the back of your mind. It doesn't mean that you have your pub conversations with your mates along those lines, but at least your private thoughts should be... What is this guy doing and why is he doing it? From from that and and how has the press portrayed it, which is another thing. His motivations might be absolutely fine, mm-hmm. but the press has... They're trying to sell newspapers. Oh, yeah. And so they will present a certain purview. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality is that universities... Um, have been quite successful in getting things to market. The, but places like Stanford University have done an analysis of what has happened in that process. And what they found was that there was no, nothing at the time that the idea was presented to them to tell them whether this would be commercially successful at the end of the day or not. There was no pattern. They looked for those patterns and they couldn't find one. And so, because there was no pattern, then how could they make decisions about which one was going to be successful Mm. or not? So they decided at that stage at Stanford University, and and Stanford probably took the lead in this, was to explore it, provide platforms for the scientists themselves to get things commercialised and just give them the freedom to do it. And again, I think that's because if if it were to be successful, then the scientists actually have to drive it because they're the ones with the passion. And that's what they found. And so how does the university get their money back? They don't worry about it, but ultimately the people who are really successful uh, generally have given bequests and so on back to the universities as their companies have become profitable. And that's where they get their money. Mm. And that works. Because mm. when these things are successful, you're not talking about making, you know, $50,000 a year. Mm. Wow, well, we've got a profit of $50,000 mm-hmm. a year or $100,000. you are talking many millions of dollars profit per year. And um, and usually for companies who are successful, they're happy to give some of that profit back to their roots. Mm. Um to make sure that other people have the opportunities that they have. And that's what's happening. So people like Meow Meow, whatever his name is, and just having that name should be indicative that what he's about is seeking publicity. And I would be very, very careful of taking any notice of people like
1: that. Um, Going back to... uh your story about how you're starting this company. Um, What has that journey been like? It's like any journey. You have to
0: want to do it. Um, You have to work hard at it. So um, when we realised that the university didn't want the intellectual property, the first thing we did was to start the process of taking out a patent, which we did. Uh, initially an Australian patent on that idea. It's a fairly long process. Uh, You put in your application and um, you can just apply for a patent and it sits there or you can apply for a patent and at that stage also ask for it to be reviewed, which we did. That costs a bit more but it means that any subsequent challenges it's already been reviewed and that, um, that minimizes those
1: challenges. So, so, so it minimizes the risk of other people uh, making a claim to your invention. So if someone
0: makes a challenge or a claim against your invention and you haven't had it reviewed at the time you put the patent in, you have to get it reviewed at each of those claims, oh. so each time it becomes your expense. You have to pay for that expense of getting it um, reviewed, if you like, against individual claims. Mm. So that can be quite expensive. Where the upfront costs doing that initially decreases those upfront costs. So. So we started that process to protect the idea. Um, at the same time, we do, did a course on how to commercialise products. One of the things is that because it's a medical device, that puts bigger constraints on it. There are So anything which is going to be used in any medical way is regarded as a medical device, which means you have to have government approval to sell it as a medical device. So things like cotton buds, they're medical devices. The lights they use in surgery, they're medical devices. Even though they don't ever touch a patient, they're just illuminating the patient, they're a medical device. So you actually have to have government... A band-aid is a medical device. So you have to have government approval to uh, use any of those devices. So that's one of... One of the costs which we will have to go through, if it's... So ours is regarded as a Class 1 medical device, which means that's the lowest level and it means that it doesn't actually need clinical trials, which is a big cost-saving in the whole process. Um, You're talking at hundreds of millions of dollars if you have to do clinical trials. So we don't have to. um, you, You do have to have testimonials from clinicians but not clinical trials so mm. our device is actually to look at the tear film and so it's a more of a diagnostic rather than a treatment even diagnostic things if there are if there are actual values you're putting on it they be, they move into a different class so if, so ours doesn't actually have a value so if, if we said if you have 62 then you're going to have a heart attack. Oh. If you have 61, right. then you're not going to have a heart attack. Okay? Yeah. So so that pushes it into a different class of medical device. In our case, that's not the case. Uh, ours is more like an x-ray. <clears throat> Where you x-ray someone and you say, that bone's broken or not broken. It's not, uh, we don't need a level. That's up to the clinician to decide what level of break it is and what he needs to do after that. But the identification part of it is it's just there. You can see it. It's either you can see it, it's broken or it's not broken. So mm. so it's like that. So we actually have to understand business, business processes. Um, so that if we sell a device, we need to know that has passed certain quality tests before we send it out to a customer and then we have to check them after they've been in the field for a certain period of time and have the capability of checking them. If something goes wrong with any one of the devices we have to know immediately where all those devices are. So there's all sorts of things. The technology we're using is... um, at military level and so we also need to make sure that uh, people so that so to get permission to use these devices we have a license from the military governments associated with the military and um, and that licensing means that we
1: need to know where the devices are so, so, how is sorry? I'm I'm a little. It's unclear for me. So, the the device that you've you've put together are the parts from the military. Yeah, the basic technology comes from the oh. military,
0: and there are certain caveats on how that can be used
1: in uh, out in the public rather than military oh. means. And yeah. so, because of that, they have to know where every single device is mm. in the world. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. So wow. when we sell it, there'll be a document which
0: the clinicians sign to tell us where they'll be using it and all that type of stuff. And we just have to keep records of that. I mean, yeah, the
1: risks associated with any of that are pretty low. Right. It's Hearing you, I mean, go through this journey of starting this company, there's a lot of steps involved, um, mm-hmm. a lot of hoops to jump through. Do you think PhD candidates and graduates um coming out of a, you know out of a phd would they be ready with these skills the and should we move towards you know arming phd candidates with skills like this so that they can do what you're doing yep.
0: the the current problem so a simple answer is no they won't have those skills the more detailed answer is that the actual problem is that The academics who are teaching them aren't even aware that they need those skills. So, the academics, so the whole platform of science and how it's funded has changed in probably the last five years in particular, where the funding, the normal funding agencies, which is the government basically, uh, want to see pathways to commercialisation. So in terms of that, there's a big pool of funds available so that the government sees in that grant application a pathway to commercialisation of a product. And at the moment, not lots of people are applying or competing for those types of grants, but there's a big pool of money. The consequence is that the basic research type money where I've got this great idea, like myself, what fascinates me is the physical chemistry of the tear film, Um, and that in itself is intellectually challenging and interesting, but that's what it is, kind of a self-indulgent intellectual thing. So for those types of monies, currently there's lots of academics Uh, ...competing for those, but the pool is very small. Mm. So the chances of getting funding in those directions now... uh, ...have diminished considerably. But the academics, like me, Mm. don't realise... ...they've been trained in... ...so when they were younger... ...they've been trained basically in the science... ...and they're doing really great science... And it's really interesting, but it's not necessarily linked with a commercial product. And so so the chances of them getting funding is remote. Mm. It's getting rem- more remote. And <clears throat> because they were trained that way, they think, and they did their PhD, and that's the mould which they're using... And they're telling their students, "This is what a PhD looks like. This is really exciting science you're doing. It's intellectually challenging. You get to use all this super duper equipment, which can tell us all this really wonderful bits of information." And um, and ultimately, they're telling the students, "This is what you need to know, and this is this is how we define you as being really clever." Mm. And so you've been trained by ignorant people, and that's the problem. And so they don't know any better. So my experience is telling me that that's wrong. And I think we'd be much better off now looking at a different pathway where our students do. Let's say if we break up a three-year PhD into two years of learning that science and learning how to be a scientist, but that will be a beginning in that learning rather than an end point. And they, get, they do those two years, they take that scientific or that science to a certain level. And then the third year, and it doesn't have to be end on like that, but the third year they say, OK, what if this science I was doing went to its end point and we got a new drug as a result what would it look like and how would I go about commercializing it and so that that year will be spent working out a business plan for commercializing something you know which which really is probably in most cases theoretical rather than actual But during that process, they would learn all about how that commercialisation and business works. As a result, I think they would have... So their supervisory panel would include someone from the School of Business. Mm. So it wouldn't be just having a scientific supervisor. Now the result of that would be that I think that when you come out with a PhD, we would have to move more towards the American system... So that if you decided to become an academic, then there would be postdoctoral fellowships available. Now postdoctoral fellows in Australia are regarded as mature scientists. They're their own scientists. That's it. That's equivalent to any other scientist. Where in the States that's not the case. Postdoctoral fellows are regarded still as training. The salaries are a lot less as a result, but they're still training. So, so they would work for someone like me as a postdoctoral fellow, but still be part of their scientific training. So that would make up... So where normally, in reality, your PhD scientific training is now four years, even though technically the degree is three, but normally it's about four years mm. it takes. Um, <clears throat> so after that initial... In my model, after that initial two years... Um, then if you decided to go in an academic career, you would get a postdoctoral fellowship and continue that training, that scientific training, for another... It's about four years is what's required Mm. to gather those skill sets, if you like, to end up an independent researcher. Um, For those who don't want to go that way, then the companies would love them because they've got a science background and they've got the nebulous of understanding business and what's required in business. And so at the moment, I've, I find that PhD students uh, find that gap very hard to bridge between coming out as a scientist, tra- trained by academics, basically, mm. to be an academic type scientist in the university, to bridge that gap into industry is very difficult and they haven't got a clue really. Mm. Um, Those who are determined to bridge that gap usually have to do things like additional courses such as an MBA or marketing or other things to get into that field. So, and typically if you wanted to work with a pharmaceutical company, you would have to start off in this way, even if you have to start off in marketing, go and sell their product. Mm.
1: That's where the people start. Mm. So. That That's interesting. One of my biggest fears, um, I suppose, is when I finish a PhD, I won't find a job because I'm just going to be like everyone else. And that has driven me um, to do to make myself as distinct as possible to learn a a second language to travel internationally to um, start this podcast for instance to distinguish myself from from my contemporaries and it's it's great to hear that you're trying to do the same thing by adding this business component to distinguish these graduates so that they can link up with industry when do you think that we will have PhD programs like this, can I, if I go into a PhD right now, can I tell my supervisor this is a component that I want to add, would the university respect that or is this a change that has to occur at the top level uh, and eventually reach the students? It's a change which has to occur at the top level, Um, I think
0: it would... The way change typically occurs in the university is that there's lots of discussions and things about it and no one really wants to take responsibility for that change, so committees decide. Uh, I think that's unfortunate. I think someone should just make the decision and say, get on with it. Mm. That way it could happen tomorrow and that's when I think it should happen. In fact, not tomorrow, today. So, um, and then you work out the details, the decisions made, then you work out the details and probably you would grandfather that so that students had both opportunities. So those who decided to do the more traditional PhDs, off they'd go and do that. And I think the movers and shakers would do this other alternative pathway Mm. and, um, and start to recognise that, because because they will be the ones who get funded. I'm absolutely sure of that. Mm. So
1: when when do you think that uh, the universities will move towards a PhD program, uh, like the one you're describing?
0: Um, I think some universities in the states are already doing that, uh, but don't tie me down to that. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of vicious rumour, but. Um, if we go on the way a lot of universities which I find extraordinarily sad um, do things in Australia they follow and I don't think there's any need to follow I think we have enough capacity at this university to actually lead And, um, and for somehow we feel that we can't do that Mm. and that really surprises me because you know I guess I guess I have a belief if if I can commercialize something other people can think that way and do it as well um it's not you know I don't know I don't think that I'm any cleverer than other people I just it's just a matter of getting on and doing it Mm. and um and wanting to do it and there's lots of people who will give you help to do it so but the tendency is in the universities that if someone high up in the university makes a decision they
1: don't really want to be held accountable for it mm. Mm. that's interesting we You mentioned that the government funding has moved in the last five years from Mm -hmm. basic science to applied science. Um, No, no, it's
0: not applied science. It's it's actually
1: commercialization. Commercialization, okay. So there's a big
0: difference because you might have something which is really applied, but there's not a market for it. So who's going to buy it or it's too expensive? So you might have three sales. That's the end of your company. I see. Um, By the time you get your product to market, you know, I've got this really super-duper way of packing more information onto a CD, which maybe you guys can't even imagine anymore. (laughs) So... So you spend three or four years trying to commercialise this new way of packaging information onto a CD so they can fit videos onto a CD. <laughs> and you're laughing. So the technology supersedes it before your idea even gets yeah. out there. So there are all sorts of things associated with commercialisation. The, the concept, as I said, I've got a new drug um, which does these wonderful things, kills, cures cancer. How do you actually... Who, who, who are you selling the drug to? Mm. Because you actually have to, in that case, get it through clinical trials. So you're probably, in that case, selling the drug to a big farmer who has the money and the resources to do those clinical trials. You're not selling it to a government or to a patient or to a doctor. You're actually targeting a farmer. So, so it's that process which people need to be thinking about. Right. And, and they will be the people who get funded. Mm. And it's not applied science. It's commercial. It's actually taking a product to become commercial mm. and showing clear pathways as to how that might happen. Right and having an awareness of what the cost to do that is. Mm. And um, in fact, I was talking to a venture capitalist and he said, I can't believe it, we've been trying to contact university people who are writing for government grants and we go and talk to them in December or something. And they say, oh, come back to us in February. This is our grant writing time. We're really busy And he said to me, it's nuts. They're applying for a million dollars. We've got $10 million to give them. Mm. So so these venture capitalists have money Mm -hmm. to give away. It's no good to them. They've got to to give it away. Because what they hope is that they will make profits on it. Sitting in a drawer, they've got the money. And some of it's your money. Some of it's superannuation funds. So some of the superannuation funds are being given to venture capitalists. And they're spending it.
1: Right. So there are big pools of money out there. Do do you think this this move towards commercialization is going to affect how science progresses um, because there's great value in basic science. And um, there's one quote that Alex brought up to me before. I think, who was it? Is it George Washington? Someone in the past where um, I think it was about the hot balloon or hot air balloon and somebody asked, what's the value of this? And he responded, what's the value of a newborn child? That's Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, thank you.
0: So, yeah, Benjamin Franklin was a great scientist. I think we have to realise that um, the... So, Benjamin, you've got to put things in the context of their time. So, at the time of Benjamin Franklin, basic scientific methods or methodology was still at its infancy. And there were people like him, people like Louis Pasteur, who were developing scientific method. So if you look at papers even in the 1930s, 1940s, there's no statistics in them. They will give all of the data. There will be no statistical analysis. Statistical analysis only came out in... sort of after the Second World War, where you started to see statistical analysis. So scientific method has developed a lot. So... So this this simplistic comp, um, concept which you presented before no longer exists. So in terms of basic science, yes, it still has to happen, but there's a limited pool of money. Mm. And so you have to have people, yes, you have to have people doing basic science, but they now have to be part of a team where you have some purview of where that basic science might take you. So my basic science of understanding this very complex physical chemistry uh, where, you know, maybe I'm the only person in the world who has an understanding of it. And it's really, it's really difficult to explain to other people because you need a whole lot of varied science to bring it all together, maths and quite complex mathematical calculations and stuff to bring it all together to understand what might be going on. And so very few people in the world would ever understand that. Um So you've still got to allow, if you like, that self-indulgence and freedom. But if you want money for it, then as a community, the community has to decide, and this is where governments do play an important role, is that it's worthwhile having self-indulgent scientists. But Mm. there's only a certain amount of money which allows that. And how do you pick the self-indulgent scientists who are going to have a winner? You can't do that. And so so those who are really passionate about what they do, they will find a way of doing that um, in any case. And, you know, people like Einstein, Curie, they all found ways of doing that. Mm. Uh, if, if you read the biography of Curie, I say Einstein and Curie because... One of the people Einstein respected a lot and loved was um, Madame Curie, because he used to go on hikes in the Alps with Madame Curie and tell her about all his theories, because she was one of the few people in the world who could actually understand what he was talking about. So, and so one of <coughs> so I think, um, and they all found ways of of carrying out their research and, and doing things and, and so, and in fact the discovery of radium happened because they were, they had access to this waste product basically which they then purified the radium out of but they got all this stuff which other people didn't want so they're scabbing mm. off, scaving off the rubbish heap so to speak to their scientific in a, in an old garden shed, which they were given, which was really open to the elements um in paris so so people find a way to do that um right. and and one of the things which I would pass on as advice and I think it was really good advice, which was given to me don't ask for money, ask for help and um because very often we ask for money, and we really don't know what we want that money for. What we really need is help. Yeah. And when that help means that we need money, then that will evolve. That you actually to do the help which you now need is money to do this particular task, and um, and that money will come. Mm. So. So yes, I think I think that. That we do need basic research, but um, the ultimate driver to get money back into science is going to be commercialisation, and we also need to educate the public Mm -hmm. that their current life, and it doesn't matter how it changes in the future, will all be driven by scientific invention. Mm. and
1: engineering perhaps as a result of that but basically it's science right okay um we're reaching towards the end of this uh interview uh or conversation to say um you kind of touched on this i was just going to say you know looking back at your life and considering your experiences and, and the things that you've seen what would be one piece of advice? And you kind of mentioned asking for help rather than money, but is there one one piece of advice that you would give students who are coming up um, in terms of navigating through this world? What could they do better? I think, okay, so a number of things.
0: So if you have a lot of natural ability, that won't get you there. If you work hard, that won't get you there. So you've got to do both. You've got to have a natural ability and you've got to work hard. And usually that means you're doing what you're passionate about. So that will get you there. It's, it's a big world and there's lots, if you like, of competition. Uh, I would say if you see someone as competition, often it's very good to actually try to work with them rather than against them. So that often gets rid of the competition. Mm -hmm. So you actually work together. Um, The other thing is that take risks. Back yourself. Um, If an opportunity comes up and you think this looks interesting, take it. So, um, yeah, just back yourself take the opportunities when they come don't don't always live in your comfort zone
1: mm. good advice thank you so much for your time uh, for your time tom i appreciate it on you i know you're very busy considering that the start of the semester is next week so thank you again you're welcome thank you thanks for listening to Blabcoats. codes rate and review our podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts because it does help us spread the word And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow up by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabquotes at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.